Hello and welcome to Plotress. This is Lane. This is Meg. And today we're reviewing When a Rogue Meets His Match by Elizabeth Hoyt. So this was published on December 1st, 2020 and is the second in the Great Court series. And full disclosure, we did receive this book for free from NetGalley. So thank you to NetGalley for providing the advanced reader copy. And we did review the first book in this series. It was the one about Freya, the wise woman, <laughs> and, and her love, Hester. And it's the one, I believe it caused me to say several times in the review, what the fuck is a Dunkelder? Yes, yes, yes. This was the Dunkelder episode. So luckily for us, there are no Dunkelders in this book, which automatically gave it like one additional star. Right. So the heroine of this book, Messaline? Messalina. Messalina, which talk about a mouthful, um, did appear briefly at the house party with Freya and Custer in that book. And so did the hero too, with his devilish eyebrows. Sure. So um, we, both of these characters are reappearing. However, we don't have to deal with the wise woman, Dunk Elder, weird family hatred plots. Yeah, no, it's very nice that we don't have to deal with that. And, and we'll get more into it, but basically this had a lot, a lot of what we love from Elizabeth Hoyt and not a lot of what we don't like, which is great. Yeah. And that's a good way of putting it. In, yes, yeah. Um, so before we get into it, let's do our usual and read the jacket. Ambitious, sly, and lethally intelligent, Gideon Hawthorne has spent his life clawing his way up from the gutter. For the last 10 years, he's acted as the Duke of Windermere's fixer, performing the Duke's dirty work without question. Now Gideon's ready to quit the Duke's service and work solely for himself. But Windermere tempts Gideon with an irresistible offer. One last task for Messalina Greycourt's hand in marriage. Witty, vivacious Messalina Greycourt has her pick of suitors. So when her uncle demands Messalina marry Mr. Hawthorne, she is appalled. But Gideon offers her a devil's bargain of his own. Protection and freedom in exchange for a true marriage. Messalina feigns agreement and plots to escape the deal. Only the more time she spends with Gideon, the more her fierce, loyal husband arouses her affections. But will Gideon's final deed for Windermere destroy the love growing between them? It's not, you know what, this, this isn't too bad for a jacket, I don't think. No, um, I think it's interesting the degree to which it doesn't talk about the series it's a part of. Not, yeah, basically not at all. Yeah, but in terms of this novel in a microcosm, I think the jacket's fine. Yeah, agreed. Jacket's perfectly fine. I don't have any issues with it. Um, I think it goes, does a good job of keeping, the, keeping it spoiler-free while also giving you what you're going to get. Again, I think we have finally come up with the perfect formula for the book jacket, which is introduce the characters, introduce the major trope. Yep. Which it does. So we know who the characters are and we know there's going to be a marriage of convenience. And then it also introduces a conflict, which is he's going to do something yep. to marry her. And she's not interested in him. Also that. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
So as um, usual, we write our own summaries, and I do think you will see some thematic similarities between ours and the actual jacket. And I think whenever that happens, it's props to the jacket. Exactly. And it also means we like the book enough not to just go off on random tangents. <laughs> also true. Yeah. Uh, so for this episode, we generated a random number of 48. You want to take it away? Sure. Fixer for a bad duke agrees to do one last dirty job in exchange for the hand of his niece, who does not consent. He needs to convince her to love him and find a way to fulfill his promise to her uncle without her hating him. Totally, totally fair. I get it. Yeah. All right, here's mine. When you grow up on the streets, your only chance of upward mobility is superiority in something. Gideon's the best knife fighter in St. Giles. You best believe he's now got a coal mining empire, a mansion, a devoted staff, and now he's married to his dream girl. Hell yeah. You know, I, it's one thing that I, look, I kind of love about historical romance in general, but whenever you have any hero, but especially a lower class hero, he's got to be the best at something. Like he's the best fighter. He's the best schoolmaster ever. He's the best well, vigilante. And, well, and in this case, he's also the best fixer, right? Like mm -hmm. his services are so coveted that he's found a way to not tame, but like work with one of the most notorious, gross, evil dudes in London. Yeah. And, and not only that, to be able to, to give notice. So basically this book starts because Gideon has told the Duke, I'm done. Like I, I've made my money. I'm done doing your dirty work. I'm ready to go. And the Duke's like, well, could I tempt you with one final deed? And in exchange, you marry my niece. And I mean, the Duke knows what Gideon wants. He does. So I appreciated that part of the story that the, the Duke had read Gideon so well. Mm -hmm. I did think, especially toward the end, the Duke's motives became a little bit weird. Yeah. Like from the reader's perspective, I wasn't necessarily following, I think, what I was supposed to be about his motives. Yeah, I, I don't disagree, but I think it bothered me less than it bothered you. <laughs> Once again, actually didn't bother me that much, just pointing it out. That's fair. Uh, so the, the major trope of this book is marriage of convenience. Yes. Except it's a marriage of convenience that she is forced into. Yeah. I think some marriages of convenience are truly both people saying, hey, I see mutual benefit here. Let's agree to this. Mm -hmm. Her hands are sort of tied. Her I options are negotiate with him or... Mm -hmm. Be, give her uncle what he wants in that in her putting up a fight so he can torture and force her into it anyway or if she does manage to escape force her sister into the same fate like she doesn't yeah. they are not on equal footing negotiating from a place of what they both want she's no. definitely backed into a corner oh yeah no that's that's totally true and then the other thing to note is that yes he's getting a lot of benefit out of the marriage but marriage to her, her specifically, not her sister, not some other upper class woman that the Duke could maybe blackmail, you know, so, right. so yes, it's marriage of convenience, but he's also got a particular interest in her. Right. No, so. he's, he's would not have accepted anyone with her dowry and connections. Right. 
he's had to absolutely be likes those things. Like yeah. he is very glad to receive those things, but he wouldn't go through with marrying her sister. That said, one, telling her uncle that just gives him power. And two, that doesn't mean he's still not able to torture her sister anyway. So you may be seeing, hmm, there's a trope here. I believe we call it, do anything for my sister, correct? That would be the trope. Um, but you also may be hearing about another trope, which is Gideon's convinced himself that he's, he only wants her and he's basically obsessed with her. Yes, but and has been for like 15 years. Forever. But he's also convinced himself that he's not in love with her. It's just because he is getting all this benefit out of the marriage. And so, she does think to his private parts. Yeah. So this is, this is the what is love trope. And she, of course, has to realize that his sad, tragic orphan upbringing. But don't worry. She is also a sad, tragic orphan, but less sad and tragic. <laughs> means that he's never really seen love or been able to trust in love to know what it is and so that's part of her struggle is like educating him that he is a man who can and does receive love yes uh, he, he he's a bad boy he's a bad he boy is but he's the bad boy who's dangerous and has learned to channel it productively which is how he's become a fixer for a dangerous man that's correct. And he is the second or third fixer we've read about, so. Yes. I was going to say, he's definitely not the first fixer we've read about. He's the first, I think he's the first knife fighting fixer, but I remember, I know for sure there's a boxing fixer. Mm -hmm. I can't remember so, the other one, but. Congrats on being good with a blade. That's your, like, unique trait. That's his unique trait, yes. <laughs> it's also where that body comes from. What? Um... <laughs> There are a lot of shopping trips, but my personal favorite is a very like gender reversal, pretty woman one where she might be spending his money, but she's the one talking to the tailor about what he needs. Yes, I loved it so much. I also was like, dang, there's a lot of shopping in this book. I thought it was actually very interesting and someone could write an entire term paper about the shopping in this book, in my opinion. Yes. Especially um, so. because it's, they both use it as a way to talk about their class differences mm -hmm. and the degree to which she is ignorant of the plight of a lot of the lower classes and the degree to which he might be dismissive of the upper class and what they value. But if you want to work with them, you do have to make an effort to fit in. Mm -hmm. Condemning everything they do and believe in isn't going to make you friends yeah, or business partners. And so the shopping trips are often used as a means of the discussion of clash consciousness, class differences, what fitting in means, at what point it, it's no longer helpful to live like you're impoverished when you're not. Mm -hmm. Like it was a very useful mechanism that was also very, very fun. <laughs> so honestly, I loved it. Major kudos, I think, to Elizabeth Hoyt for like these three or four different shopping trips. Yeah. Um, it was great. And some with her sister, some with him. Like, mm -hmm. I really, I like the diversity of it. I like the different perspectives. I really enjoyed those parts of this book. Yeah. And we can all relate when they get home and Messalina goes, dang, shopping just makes you tired, doesn't it? Yeah. Totally. It's the best, it's the best kind of fatigue. Um, there is a carriage makeout. It is not a carriage sex scene, but for good reason. So I gave it, like, not a pass, but, like, I wasn't mad about it. Yeah. 
So carriage makeout. He, so he is a sad, tragic orphan who just doesn't know what love is, but he does carry a physical memento of the one true love of his life, yes. familial love. Um, so be aware that, that there is a physical memento of Which, a tragedy in love. Probe. Um, and then one of my favorite tropes that I am coming to love more and more, the more often we see it is he's bought a house, but hasn't furnished it. Yeah. And he whisks her off to it without preamble in a scene that is really fun. Um, and, but sometimes with this trope, the guy buys the house and he's like, I figured you'd want to furnish it. He legitimately hasn't even thought about it. He literally only got what he deemed an acceptable bed before he left to go get her. And like, she was like, how do I put my clothes away? And he's like, like what? what? I have not thought of that. <laughs> like, put clothes away. He's like, His you, you don't is, have the one black suit that you wear to all occasions. He's like, you know, most people don't have multiple pairs of clothes. And she's like, okay, but I do. Like, I don't, I can't help you. Please give me furniture. <laughs> exactly. Um, they do make the sex bargain. We have seen this so many times, especially with Marriage of Convenience where whether or not the marriage is consummated or how the marriage is consummated or is the marriage consummated only once, like all of that gets explicitly worked out before, mm -hmm. which is always such a good time. Yeah. And we all know that they're all going to break the sex bargain too. Or they are going to like try so hard not to. Yeah. Which it's so good. They don't try hard not to. No, they don't in this one at all. No. Uh, and of course, as a byproduct of his tragic, sad orphan knife fighting history, the man is covered in scars. So many scars. But including one on his face, but it's a hot one. Yeah, yeah, the sexy, the sexy one. Mm -hmm. Never once is he like worried about this scar on his face making him look bad. Uh-uh. And of course, the first time she sees him naked, she's like, oh my God, your whole body is covered in scars. That one that is only a couple of inches from your penis looks like it almost killed you why am i so fascinated with that one hmm. no it, it also leads to the tell me about this scar tell me about this scar conversation prelude to sex which trope 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 and then um just based on that i do need to throw in bathtub sex yeah i think i'm like legally obligated somewhere in our contract yeah, well, this is like Lane's, I don't know if it's the bathtub sex, but just the bathing. So he is, oh, this is such a trope. He's the orphan who spent his whole childhood like dirty and sad, and so he's now obsessed with cleanliness as an adult. And like, I'm into that. Not the tragedy that prompts it, but like the very fastidious dude really works for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually really liked the way it played out here, so... Well, he has a secret room she's not allowed to enter. And spoiler alert, it's just a bathtub. Yeah. It's like very Good. blue layered. They're like, don't go in there. And she's like, oh, she's like, what does he keep in there? Like, oh my God. You know, yeah. I don't know. It's just like drugs, money, dead bodies. Like who knows? So one day she like goes in and she's like, oh, he's taking a bath. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's awesome. I like, not kidding you. I legit loved that well so, it also serves the purpose right of the thing he keeps hidden is his one indulgence mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. love it love it elizabeth white mm -hmm. um so i loved this book you may remember that we had some issues with the first one in the series 
what the fuck is a dunk elder? We don't know what a dunk elder is. Kester's name sounds really stupid in American <laughs> English. Even though Kester was like a super great guy. Like, like I loved Kester, but that was about all I loved about the first book. Yes, correct. This book, I loved most things. Like, I really mostly liked this book, like, a lot. Um, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, this, this book has basically the things I like the most about Hoyt and none of the things I dislike. So again, if you have listened to any of our Elizabeth Hoyt episodes, you will know that we have pointed out in every single one of them that there's some kind of um, sexual violence. Not usually, in fact, never between the hero and heroine, but the heroine maybe had some in her past or the hero is fighting sex trafficking or the Dunkelders are in the Dunkelders, spoiler alert, the, the um, villain of the book kept his wife enslaved and raped her in the basement for months and months and months. Uh, in this book, there is, <laughs> sorry, Elaine. I mean, I hate it so much. And I'm so glad that this book maintained an incredibly high level of angst, which is not my cup of tea, but is Hoyt's bread and butter, without ever mentioning sexual violence of any kind. Not once. There was a brief mention that his mother um, had been a prostitute. Correct. So obviously... I'm not comparing prostitution to rape, you know what I mean? But like there is sexual trauma at the very least and the commodification of women's bodies mentioned in the text, but there's no one that needs to be saved. There's no one who was previously a victim of sexual violence, like props all around Elizabeth White. So, I mean, that was, that was, that's the main thing that we kind of dislike. And then the other thing that she does often in her books is she sets up the next book by having several chapters from the next books protagonist's point of view. So if you read the first book in the series, um, which is not the Duke's Darling, there are several chapters from Messalina's perspective. Yes. Uh, in this book, there are several chapters from Julian's perspective, so that's Messalina's brother, but they are all relevant to the plot and they all further the story in one way or the other. So it it actually, I think, made a lot of thematic sense. Yeah, and it depends. I think in some points, the chapters from the other future protagonist perspectives have really worked. And in some points, they are very ham-fisted and boring. And in this one, I, I did, sort of didn't notice she was doing it, if I'm honest. Like, mm -hmm. Julian's chapters were so organic to the story that... Of course, given how much focus he was getting, I realized he's the next protagonist in the series, but it really did take me reflecting back to realize how much time we'd spent in his head because it mm -hmm. was that relevant textually. Yeah, no, so I thought it was, I thought it was really well done. Basically, you weren't reading it and going, uh-huh, okay, let's get to the next chapter. Yeah. I don't need to know about this guy yet. You know? If I reread this book, I won't skip those chapters. Yeah. And that's like what? the highest praise I can give to the POV chapters in Hoyts. I agree. I actually totally agree. And Hoyt's one of my favorite authors. Yeah. Author, so. Uh, so like I said, in my summary, Gideon is one of those heroes who's really, really good at something. Um, High level of competency porn here. Yes. 
Uh, he's, he's very confident at knife fighting. He's the best knife fighter ever, but he's also really good at like staff management and staff development. Yeah. So on the first part of that, one of the things I found the most interesting when Meg and I were talking about this book after the fact, it's a very violent book. Mm-hmm. And usually that's not Meg's cup of tea. Mm-mm. I'm the one who doesn't mind it. I read this shocked Meg was not bothered because yeah. it was enough that even I was like, oh, that's gory. And I didn't dislike it, but it was gory. I mean, there was a, like, there's the one part where they're, they get attacked after the opera. And I was like, oh, I mean, it was, it was pretty intense. And it's not just the violence of the moment. Like there's a scene really early in the book where they get attacked and he has to defend them. Mm-hmm. And she notices several hours later that he still has blood caked under his nails. Like it's those sort of visceral details that really don't let you hide from how violent mm-hmm. he is as a person. And so the fact that Meg was so desperate for me to read this because she loved it so much. And I'm not going to lie to you listeners. I liked it. The levels of like obsession as if, oh my God, I'm so excited you read this because I'm so excited to read this that Meg had, I'm not quite, quite a little angsty for me, but I was really surprised the violence didn't bother you. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I think, I think it's because it was linked to his competency. (laughs) Okay. Like as long as he's the best knife fighter, you can handle the knife fighting. Well, and, and he, he never, um, he, they, he talks about starting stuff in the book, but he never actually starts anything in this book. He's always defending her or himself. Yeah, I found that a little bit weird. Look, so- yes, I get that it's like probably out of character. And, um, you know, if he's a bad boy, why is he just defending himself all the time? No, actually, that's not what I was going to say. Oh, so okay. the scene where they're out to protect outside the opera, he does kill a man. He does. And she's like really freaked out, but not afraid of him. Just like freaked out because she's been attacked. And he, she says something. He's like, that's the first one I've killed. He mm-hmm. killed someone in the first chapter. Like, what was well, he talking about? They don't like, know I, if they're dead. But she just, even, like incapacitated them. Right. Like, and she, I understand she was saying, have you ever killed someone for my uncle? And he's like, no, but he's clearly even his knife fighting past. Like he's clearly killed people. I just didn't understand what the point that he was trying to make in that moment was. Yeah. I'm unsure. Meg shrugging like she couldn't care less about this question. <laughs> I don't, I don't care. I was like, whatever. <laughs> yep. Um, so he's really good at knife fighting, but he's also, I don't know. I just really liked what a good manager he was. Yeah. I know this sounds really stupid, but this is something that I've been thinking about, about lately. And he's just like, he's good at developing stuff. He's good at identifying people who he can then train to be good employees. And of course, then they're super loyal to him. I don't know. He just has very good skills. <laughs> Okay. That's not what I was reading this for. (laughs) I mean, I wasn't either. At least I didn't know that's what I was going to read it for. But I was like, damn, I was like, I need to take some notes for my next performance review. (laughs) (laughs) Like how to be a good manager. Please give feedback to Gideon so I can learn from this. Yeah. Uh, And then he's very much a romance hero bad boy in that he does some pretty bad shit, like knifing people. Oh, yeah. But 
And yes, he does it for some pretty selfish reasons, which are, I want to get out of St. Giles and be rich. But then what does he do? He goes and he finds, you know, people in desperate circumstances. And those are the ones who he's training to, you know, be cooks or be servants or be bookkeepers or whatever. Right. Like he didn't just bring himself up. He is trying to identify people with a similar background who deserve opportunities exactly. within their own professions. He's paying, he's paying it forward. He's paying forward the gains that he made from his knife fighting. Even though don't call him nice. Don't call him nice. But um, I don't know. So I, I am definitely a sucker for those nice guys who pretend like they're not nice. You Are you though, know, or do you just really like him? Maybe it's just him. Okay, because I don't think that's a theme I've seen come across in this podcast. <laughs> well, I, look, I, I like romances. I don't necessarily like bad boys because I feel like they're not often well-written. Right. I think that's my issue because bad boys are never bad enough. Or, or. they're too bad. Like, they're not redeemable. But I, I feel like he walks that line. He's a true bad boy, but who also has some truly redeemable characteristics that, okay. are, that make sense. Once again, I agree with you. I don't think this is a theme of people you've been into. I can't think of other <laughs> characters when you've been like, yeah, so excited for the bad boy redeemed. <laughs> it's true. And, you know, Hoyt doesn't do a great job with it either. She has a lot of bad boys that I actually hate. Yeah. So. Especially in their own books. Mm. Are you talking about Valentine? I might be. (laughs) Okay, so just in the middle of Meg's gush factory, I do want to get out why I said I think this was a little too angsty for me. Mm -hmm. I liked it. I want to say overall, I liked this book, but there's a lot of her demanding he be open with her, him either not trusting her or thinking the truth is too much for her and refusing. Mm-hmm. Her pushing, 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 him finally giving in, and then her freaking out. Yeah. And not giving him a chance to listen. And I felt like especially a lot of, for, for a character who is written to be so pragmatic, when it came to Gideon, Messalina frequently overreacted, didn't want to listen, did the most dramatic thing in the moment. And it did lead to some very eye-rolly sequences for me. Because I know Megan and I say all the time, oh my God, talk to each other. It would resolve the conflict. Here, even when they talk to each other, it doesn't resolve the conflict. And it's namely because of some behavior I found pretty out of character. I, you know what? I don't disagree with you because there are, there are two separate times where there's a big misunderstanding. Or to be honest, it's not really big misunderstanding because she understands exactly what he did. You know, it's just like knowing the facts and then assuming motive. Yes. Yes. In a way that didn't make sense. So I I don't disagree with Lane that the conflict was a little bit contrived. It was just every single thing that happened was the angstiest way it could have happened. Oh, which is fun sometimes. And sometimes it's like, okay. And there was, for the most part, I thought this angst was actually pretty fun. Yeah. It just went on a little too long. It went on a little too long. I'll say, because like I said, there were two separate circumstances. I will definitely agree with you that in the first one, 
I really wish because they have a fight and then they don't talk. She avoids him for like a full week. Yes. And I was like, okay, you didn't have to do that. You know, it would have been better if they had talked a little sooner. It's not, it's not a deal breaker. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't, but I just, I did wish there was a little bit less jumping to conclusions just in the name of creating more drama. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't. And I don't disagree with you. And I think for me though, the fact is that I really liked the rest of the book like so much that it could overcome that for me. Again, I think for me, like I said, it's, it didn't ruin the book. Mm -hmm. Just pointing it out. Yeah. So we talked a lot about Gideon. Um, I actually liked Messalina too as a character. She's definitely more low key than he is. But what I liked about it is that through her relationship with Gideon, she was sort of realizing and recognizing her own privilege. But also saying, you know what, it doesn't help to feel guilty about this. But what I can do is leverage this money. And she sees that Gideon's doing the same thing. Like he's getting richer, but he's using that money, not just for himself, but also to help other people. And she's like, you know what, maybe I could do that too. Right. I don't know. I just, I just like that a lot. Um, And I also liked that part of the reason that she could do that was because for the first time in her life, she had the luxury of being able to think of something other than like surviving her evil uncle, basically. Right. She had a degree of agency. Exactly. And that's something that, that she got through the relationship. So it's, it's not, you know, she didn't learn to love, which is like Gideon learned, right? Right. But she was able to just like sit with herself and like be alone and be herself and really think, what do I want to do? Well, and I also think Hoyt did a really good job here because a lot of, a lot of Mezzalina's transformation is learning to understand the plights of the lower classes. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times when you see this in a romance novel, because it's pretty common, mm-hmm. it goes really far. Mm-hmm. And I think in the case of the one small boy, it did... A little bit. It, it, it went a little bit like beyond what would have been normal, but like a woman who has been her personal maid for several years, she finally asks like what town she's from. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of humanizing of the lower classes for a woman of her rank and status would have been pretty authentic to the period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like it's, she's not suddenly become a revolutionary for the dismantling of the aristocracy. No. But she's recognizing that like there's more to people than just the function they serve in her life. Mm-hmm. And she's starting to be interested in them for yeah. those reasons. Like, I don't feel like that's a massive transformation, but it is a big perspective shift. Yeah. And this is something Lane already talked about, but it's something that I really liked too, is that she's, she's realizing that she can help Gideon with his business interests because he doesn't know, he, he really wants to get these investors, but he doesn't understand how to do it. But he won't ask for help. Like, he doesn't understand what's not working. He's such a, this is like a very stereotypical man, 
but also very believable, you know? Yeah. Um, and she's like, look, I can help you out if you want me to. And he's like, takes him a while. And he's like, fine. Like, what should I do? And she tells him and he's like, that's stupid. And she's like, look, I never said it was, I never said it wasn't stupid. But if you want to do what you say you want to do, you better do what I tell you to do. And he's like, yep. fine. I don't know. I just, it's dumb, but really enjoyable. Well, it was a fun way to see them working together before they'd necessarily resolve the problems that resulted from her being forced to marry him against his will to please her evil uncle. Right. I, I just realized that our past two few sentences are like really long, but that's okay. Uh, and then Lane mentioned this, but yeah, I just love how she, Lane called it the pretty woman shopping spree. I called it that she went Cinderella on him, but he's Cinderella and she's the fairy godmother. Yeah. Like they go to a tailor and she basically is like, I'm going to order him the clothes that he needs. And they sound so much fun, don't they, Lane? Yes. My God, I want... Especially because so much of good men fashion today is so boring. Yes. And like, I mean, R.I.P. Chadwick Boseman, he was the one person who really did experiment and I miss him for a lot of reasons but including his green suits yeah so but yeah so he's he she orders and the one thing i'm disappointed is that at is that you don't get to see him wearing these suits very often yeah there's only like two scenes yeah and it's not like the red the scarlet one <laughs> which i would like to have seen but also, he, like, almost cries, like, three times, and then he actually cries, and I just like that. <laughs> Give me crying heroes. So, you may think from the way we've talked about this that the main conflict is her uncle, his control over their lives, and the terrible task he's asked of Gideon, which is very, very bad, but which we are not going to spoil for you. There's actually another bad guy that just got warned into the back page. Mm-hmm. I thought the resolution with the uncle was awesome. I loved it. So like the resolution of what you think is the main conflict was so earned and so much fun and pitch perfect and believable. It's not like this Duke gets murdered in the street and everyone gets away with it. Like that would not work. And I, de- I require a degree of believability. But if it's over-the-top believability, it's even better. It's even better. The resolution with the secondary baddie that you're not even thinking is a thing, I was pretty dissatisfied with. Yeah. I, I Honestly, I just felt bad for Gideon. I think, I, I think at this point I had drunk the Kool-Aid so much and I just loved Gideon so much that I was just like, aw, that's so sad for Gideon. I didn't even care about if it worked narratively. It was, I think it just prompted more questions than it answered in a way that then when you realize the book was over, you're like, oh, so none of those are getting answered. Yeah, that's fine. I, I will end by saying that he, he does have a grand gesture and I loved it so much. It was so stupid and so sweet. It was the manifestation of the take everything without you, I'm nothing. Exactly. And I was so there for it. I laughed out loud. Yes, but you also loved it, didn't you? Oh, yeah. That's what that means. Yes. Thank you. 
I was like, I was like, no, no, yes. Like, thank you, Elizabeth Hoy. Thank you for it that. Was, it was so fun. And just props in general. Um, she is one of four living siblings. And I thought all of her siblings added to the narrative, had distinct personalities. I, like, good job giving her a rich exterior life. Yeah, I agree. He had friends who came and hung out with her. Mm-hmm. He had no rich exterior life, but that was in character. <laughs> so in character. And so romance hero-y, too. Yeah. So did anything beyond what we've already talked about offend you? Uh, no. I mean, I think the main content warnings were the, the violence. So there is a lot of, a lot of violence. Um, there were some references to domestic violence with her uncle. So it's, it's implied mm-hmm. that he's killed his first two wives, I believe. And now he's with a, a new one who's changed dramatically since their marriage. You know, she was, she was a happy young debutante and now she's basically been beaten into submission. Um, and whether or not she was literally beaten or just demoralized is sort of left ambiguous. Right. Um, but that's really it though. Yeah, that's really it. Which for a Hoyt, I'm like, for wow. Hoyt, I feel like there is a sliding scale. Like with Hoyt, if, you know, I'm not actually physically nauseous reading about somebody's past, I'm like, this is pretty angsty. Oh, it was great. Um, and uh, sexiness. So this okay. is, I mean, in my opinion, it's like real sexy. It's really well done. Like the buildup between the two of them and then the payoff when they actually get together. Like, I think I liked the seduction more than the sex just Mm. because we all know I like sex when everybody's on the same page. And the whole time he is hiding something from her. Every single time, yeah. And basically every time it's like angsty sex because he's thinking... I can never let her know this is the best moment of my life, but it's going to end any second because she's going to find out. I have to savor these moments when she can still stand the sight of my face. So like those parts were objectively hot, but like not my fave. The buildup was all very good and angst-free. So I enjoyed that a little bit more. Um, the first scene where she sees him in the bath. Oof. Uh, oof. Yep. Uh-huh. That's very sexy. Also, okay, I loved this so much. She, they have dinner or something. She goes to the room. She goes to their bedroom. He's not there. And she's like, okay. But there's, he's left her a note. And all the note says is, I am bathing. <laughs> and she's like, hmm. And like literally Hoyt says, she could recognize an invitation when she read one. And I was like, yes, yes. you know. And then- just because I feel like with a lot of what we have read recently, this needs to be stated, it does not fade to black. No, it does not. It does not. It's extremely sexy. Amen. Yeah. So um, I really, I enjoyed, so we've talked before about how sometimes in romance novels, sex is really used to further the development of the relationship with these people. Mm -hmm. I think in this book, sex is really used to express his inner turmoil. I agree. And that's, it's very explicit. It's very fun. It's objectively very sexy. 
but I do think, just to point it out, I'm typically more into the sex that's used to build the relationship. Yeah. Like thinking there is no sex after the conflict is resolved. <laughs> I knew I put that I put that in the notes for Lane because I knew she was going to say it. I knew it. I am predictable. But uh, now that you're saying that, it's just very interesting because, like, thinking back, there this is a Hoyt, so there are at least four different sex scenes, and I I think you're lowballing it. At least, at least. <laughs> I think they're all from his perspective, except for one. I mean, this is pretty standard of a no. romance novel in that, like, ch- individual paragraphs will switch to her perspective. Yeah. But I definitely think you're right that the sex is more about him in the way it's presented narratively. Yeah. Because for her, she's interpreting, she's interpreting all of their encounters as okay, we're going to make a marriage of this, whatever, you know, which is pretty boring. I mean, it's not, the sex is fine, but like her emotions <laughs> towards the sex are like, yeah, you know. Pretty boring. <laughs> I don't know. But for him, it's like super every single time they hook up, he's like, this could be the last time, basically. So like every time he can take it to that level. Yes. So, but I mean, basically I loved this book. If you in general like Elizabeth Hoyt, I think you're going to really, really like this one. I think it's one of her better books. I would agree. Um, Meg said before Hoyt's one of her favorite authors. I think for me, Hoyt is a, I really like the good. Mm-hmm. She's hit or miss for me. This mm-hmm. definitely falls into the hit pile. It's a hit guys. <laughs> Check it out. Thank you guys so much for listening. And be sure to check us out on Instagram at Plotris and on Goodreads at Plotris.